Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, the devil in disguise. That was number one in the charts on the day that I was born. 3rd of August, 1963, which is not a very auspicious start. Um, and perhaps a bit of a worrying start for my parents. But uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll brush over that. I was, I, I'm Kevin Chibig. I'm the CEO of Elephant, as, as uh, Felipe said. I'm 52 years old, as you could work out from that. Uh, I am uh, a father, uh, a husband, a father, an accountant, which I'll talk more about later, and a triathlete. Uh, I'm not sure I got those in the right order, actually. Um, a husband, I've been married for nearly 30 years. I'll be 30 years married next year. I'm happily married. I don't know about my wife. Um, I'm a father of two beautiful girls who are now in their 20s, and both of them married, I think happily, hopefully. Uh, I am an accountant. I qualified as an accountant in 1986, uh, the year before they invented double-entry bookkeeping, so that was lucky. Um, and I'm a triathlete. Uh, I do triathlons as a hobby. That's my major hobby, and, I th and it's perhaps more of an obsession than a hobby these days. I, I like to do the longer ones. I've done, I think, five half Ironmans and two Ironmans so far this year already. And I've got another one lined up for, in two months' time, which I'm looking forward to. So uh, you could call it a hobby, I guess. Um, and in between all that, I try and be CEO of Elephant Insurance Company, and I give it my best shot. Um, but I'm going to tell you about me and about my leadership journey. Um, so I'll go right back to the beginning. I was born in a place called Portsmouth in England. Uh, Portsmouth is very similar to the Portsmouth we have here in Virginia. It's a Navy town. Uh, my father was in the Navy all the time I was growing up. Uh, and uh, I guess um, my mother was, uh, was in sort of uh, fairly basic jobs. I think I would, you would call, I guess, my upbringing a fairly working class upbringing, uh, fairly straightforward. I was the third of four children. Uh, so for most of the time I was growing up, the things that I had and the clothes that I wore were the things that my brother had had before me. Uh, and uh, I went to a school which was, I guess you'd call it quite a challenging school. I think you call them public schools here. Um, <laughs> it was about 2,000 students. It was a big school, uh, and there was a lot of friction between students and teachers. Uh, I spent most of my time in my school years making sure I didn't get beaten up. Uh, I was lucky for most of the time there because my older brother was actually quite good at fighting. Uh, he went on to be a policeman through his career. Um, uh, so while he was at school, I was okay. But when he left school, it started to get a bit tricky for me. I had to start to run faster. <laughs> uh, and that, so my, 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 uh, it was a very happy childhood, but it was a fairly basic childhood. And I think uh, the school didn't have a rep great reputation. It was one of the lowest quality schools in the UK. Uh, very few of the students at that school went to university. Uh, it was a, if you showed any real interest in academics, you were seen as a bit of a weirdo. Sorry about that. Um, uh, but I did go to university, and I was very uh, proud of that fact. I was one of the few who did go. I was the first in my generation of my family to go to university. Uh, in fact, the only one in my generation to go to university. Um, and uh, I went to a place called Samson University. I did a degree in politics and law. The politics, because I was actually getting very interested in politics at that age. I was a uh, teenager interested in politics. And the law, because I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and uh, so I did my degree in politics and law. I, I at that point, I probably got the first piece of really bad advice I got in my career. Uh, whilst I was at university, one of the lecturers said to me, you don't want to be a lawyer. There's a lot of unemployed lawyers out there, uh, which is a terrible piece of advice, uh, because, well, even though I took it. Um, because if you're good at what you do, if you're, if you're interested in what you do, I'd say really do what you're really passionate about. And if you really enjoy it, you'll be good at it. And if you're good at it, you won't be one of the unemployed ones. I didn't realize that at the time, so I decided not to do law. I had some good jobs at university, though. I, uh, whilst I was there, I was, uh, let me think, I was, uh, I was a garbage collector for a while. Uh, I was a toilet cleaner for a while. A toilet, sorry, restroom cleaner for a while, uh, which actually was a surprisingly rewarding job. It, I was working in a, a shipbuilding yard in Portsmouth. I don't know, several thousand men. And after they'd finished what they were doing, I had to go and clean up. It was surprisingly entertaining, actually. You'd be, you'd be amazed. Um, <laughs> but I can save those stories for another time, perhaps. Um, I did various jobs. I stacked shelves in the middle of the night, I remember. That was quite good fun. I worked in a building site for a while. And uh, I've probably had the scariest job I've ever had. 
And it was a long time ago now. I've never had a job as scary as this. When I worked on a, on a building site, it was a cement factory site. Uh, and you know those big cement mixers that where, the, where the sort of conveyor belt goes up into the sky? And then there's a mixer bowl at the top. And then the trucks come in and they fill the trucks up with cement. My job on this particular week was to climb up the conveyor belt, climb into the mixer bowl. And the mixer bowl is just a giant mixer bowl with a big hole in the bottom. So I'm standing in the bowl like this because otherwise I'd be going down through the bottom. It's about 100 feet to the ground below, sheer drop, no harness or anything. And I've got a pneumatic handheld drill in my hand. And my job was to clean the bits of cement off the inside of the bowl so that it would, the bowl would be ready to use again. Scary job. Um, I also got my second piece of really bad career advice whilst I was working there. In my very first week, I remember, I was uh, sweeping up. I, my job was to sweep up the, clean up the bits after the builders had finished making this new uh, floor. So I'm sweeping away, and about 10, 15 minutes into the job, the other guy with me comes over to me and he says, slow down. Slow down, you're sweeping too fast. If you keep doing this, they'll just give us another job to do. Great advice. <laughs> so anyway, I, got, I finished university. I, um, I came out with my politics and law degree. I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I... Uh, I knew I wasn't going to do law, but I didn't know what to do. And the employers that came around the university, I chose this one that had a job base on the south coast of England. Beautiful location, seaside town. Uh, it was paying £5,000 a year. It's like about $8,000 a year. It was like a fortune. So I thought, I'm going to live on the south coast. I'm going to get paid a fortune. This is going to be fantastic. So I decided to do that. Only when I got there did I kind of begin to realize I was supposed to be studying accountancy. It was a trainee accountant job with a, with a life insurance company. So I'd kind of fallen into accountancy and I'd kind of fallen into insurance. Uh, it didn't go very well to begin with, to be honest. I had my first set of exams I took about three or four months in. I took three accountancy exams, I remember. I failed two of them. Passed the third one. Um, one of the ones I failed was company law, which was a bit embarrassing, having just had a law degree. Um, uh, my, my boss called me in and he suggested to me it might be a good idea if I tried a little bit harder. Uh, if I wanted to keep my job. So I tried a bit harder. Uh, and I managed to qualify. I qualified a couple of years later as an accountant uh, and then sort of got onto my career in the, uh, in the user way through the finance roles. Shortly around about at that time when I first qualified, I got my first management job, my first real experience of leadership. Uh, I took over a department of two old ladies. Uh, I mean, I'd say they were old ladies. They're probably younger than I am now, to be honest. But at the time, they felt like old ladies. Um, I was 22, 23. Their previous boss had been their boss for 15 years, and he'd just retired. Uh, and they looked at me with a, a sort of look that was halfway between disdain and, and hatred. <laughs> and they thought I was a complete idiot which is probably a reasonably accurate assessment. Uh, and the job was called section head, by the way, which I've always liked. It sounds like a medical procedure, doesn't it? Um, but that was a sort of old title for a supervisor. Uh, and I learned a lot in that first job, to be honest. A lot of <laughs> how to persuade two old ladies to do something they didn't want to do was the first thing. Um, and that was my grounding. I was absolutely scared witless, I remember, in the role. But uh, I started to sort of build my, I guess, what you might lose euphemistically called my management skills in that job. Um, but I took then, I guess, what you might consider to be a fairly typical career route through the finance roles of more and more senior finance jobs until I became a CFO in 1995, I think. Yes, 95. Uh, and I was very lucky to get that job. I, uh, I'd applied for a, a chief accountant job, which is kind of like one rung down from a CFO, at a new startup insurance company, a bank, in fact. An Australian bank was launching a new life insurance company in the UK. And I applied to be the chief accountant, got the job as chief accountant, uh, started in the company, and, uh, and then shortly, only literally about two weeks later, the CFO resigned. He left. Uh, and so they said to me, well, you might as well do the job for a while while he's figuring out, well, we're figuring out who to replace him with. And so they put me in there, and I did it for a bit, and they were looking for the new CFO, and about nine months later, they kind of gave up and they went, well, you might as well do the job then. <laughs> so it was a ringing endorsement. Uh, and that was my first CFO job. And I was very, very lucky. I was lucky for a couple of counts. Firstly, because it was a big break for me, but also because 
my boss at the time, the CEO, was a really inspirational character. And some of you have already met people like that, I'm sure, in your careers so far, and will meet people like that in the future. This guy was a real uh, mentor for me. And one of the things he said to me was, go and do an MBA. Uh, so this is 1996, and he told me to go and do an MBA at London Business School, which I didn't even know what an MBA was at that time, to be honest. Um, but he was a boss, so I went and did it. Uh, and uh, that was a very, very interesting experience. I mean, it was a very expensive experience. Uh, luckily, the company were paying. I remember it was £25,000. Can you believe that? I'm sure it can't be that expensive anymore. Um, and I remember the, I don't know if you guys had this experience as well, but I went, we went to the uh, evening reception earlier on before we actually started. And some ex-students stood up and talked about their experiences on the MBA. We thought this is going to be very inspiring. One lady stood up, and I'll never forget, she said, if I knew then what I know now, I'd never have done this thing. <laughs> Don't do it. And I, my friends and I were looking, thinking, well, she must be a wimp. She can't be very good. Two years later, I knew exactly what she meant. <laughs> I did an executive MBA. I was, I was living up in Glasgow, which is about 500 miles north of London, where the, the school's obviously based. And I flew down up and down twice a week to do this stuff. It was ridiculous. It, uh, it was a big strain. I'm sure you have a similar strain on yourselves going through this process. But it was a phenomenal experience. A phenomenal experience. And I don't regret a second of it. I learned so much. It gave me so many new technical skills. It gave me so much more understanding of how businesses work. I'm sure you're the same. You're, I've learned that, that so many businesses face so many similar problems. You might dress it up with certain jargon, or you might call it different things, but basically they're very similar problems. And as an accountant, it gave me an enormous amount of confidence to step outside my finance job and play a role running the business overall. And that was really, really valuable. But the most important lesson I think I got out of that MBA, and I hope you all feel the same, is it gave me an enormous amount of confidence. It made me realize that I could do stuff. And that uh, just surviving the MBA was one of them. But, um, but also making an influence on how things happen. And I got a lot of confidence from doing that MBA, and I came out of that, I think, quite a different kind of person, a different kind of leader. Uh, great experience. So, um, so that was 1996. I then progressed through a couple of other CFO roles before I joined Admiral. And I joined Admiral in 2005. So 10 years ago, in four days' time, uh, which uh, turned out to be a pretty good decision because um, at that point I was joining Admiral, a company that had just floated on the London Stock Exchange. It, uh, it just joined the FTSE 250, which means it was one of the largest 250 companies in the UK. Uh, the previous CFO had decided to retire when the company floated, so that was my opportunity to become the CFO. Uh, and I was very grateful for the opportunity because the next... Ten years have turned out to be a very exciting journey. The company has continued to grow very, very fast. It's moved from being, I think, about 3% market share when I joined it in the UK to being about 10 or 11% market share now. Uh, it's had a fantastic ride, and I've had a lot of fun on the way, and I've learned a great deal. Um, I did the CFO job for, uh, I guess, six or seven years before I decided that uh, I wanted to see if I could take on a new challenge. And at that point in time, we just lost our... CEO of one of our UK subsidiary companies, a business called Confuse.com that Felipe mentioned, uh, which is a kind of online shopping channel for insurance, a price comparison site, if you will. If you've heard of Compare.com, you will. Um, then uh, it's very similar to that, but on a much bigger scale. At the time, it was a, one of the leading price comparison sites in the UK. And I decided to be the interim CEO of that business while we look for a new CEO. And in so doing, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. It was a lot of fun. It, was a, it gave me an interesting perspective on how things can be done differently and, uh, and the influence you can have as a CEO and the, and, the, and the role that you play in the business. So I did that for about a year. and decided I quite like this. So I, when the opportunity came up to be the CEO of Elephant Insurance here in the US, which was now three and a half years ago, I took that opportunity up and I've been here ever since. Uh, so let me tell you uh, a little bit about my... Philosophy on management, if you like, my, my uh, philosophy, simple philosophy on leadership, things that I think I've learned on the way. Lesson number one, I'd say, if you want to be a good leader, is be well organized. That's it, be well organized. 
If I was, you know, there's, there's thousands of books on leadership, uh, but if I had to try and pick one thing that I put at the top or very near the top, I'd say be really well organized. Be a person who gets stuff done. Doesn't matter how you do it, make lists, do project plans, whatever it is, but if you're all well organized and you do what you say you're going to do, and you keep your life in order and you manage to do most of the right kind of things, you're going to be a much more successful leader. Uh, remarkable how many people are not very well organized. But if I want somebody in my organization to do something for me, I'm going to give it to the one that I think is very well organized. I know they're going to actually do the job I've asked them to do. So I put that pretty high on the list. Just whatever system works for you, figure it out and work with it through your career. And you'll build a reputation as being the guy or the lady that gets stuff done. And if you get stuff done, you're going to get noticed. And if you're going to get noticed, you're going to get promoted. And if you're going to get promoted, you're going to be asked to do more stuff. And your career will be much more enjoyable. That's number one. Number two on my list is try and have a degree of humility. Try and be humble about what you do. Yes, of course you've got to have a certain amount of self-confidence to get on and make the decisions and, do, and be responsible for things. But try and keep your feet on the ground. Keep a good degree of humility about who you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, it drives me nuts when I see people on the TV pontificating about how much they know about subject X or subject Y. You see business leaders on the TV, you see politicians on the TV, and they talk about a subject as if they have all the answers as if this is the answer to the problem. And it just drives me crazy, because it's nonsense. They have an opinion, and they maybe have an, an answer, and it might be quite a good answer, but it isn't the answer. A good degree of humility goes a long way, in my opinion. Surround yourself with really smart people, better people than you if you can, smarter people than you that you can look to to help you make the right decisions in your business, and keep your feet on the ground with a good degree of humility. I like to think that I'm the very lucky custodian of the job I have right now. A very lucky custodian of it. And I'll do that job to the best of my ability for as long as I can. But when I've stopped, somebody else will come in and take the job from me, and they'll probably do a better job than I'm doing. And that's fine. It reminds me of a story of, uh, well, I told you when I, when, I, when I was very lucky to work for this guy who told me to go and do the MBA. Uh, unfortunately, he left a couple of years later and was replaced by a different guy who was the marketing director at the time. Uh, we'll keep the names quiet to protect the guilty. Uh, let's call him Mike. Actually, his name is Mike, so... Um, <laughs> uh, Mike took over and was quite different to my old boss. And uh, at that time, the group, the Australian bank that was running this insurance company in the UK, decided to put all their senior managers through a, a leadership course. And it was a one-week-long leadership course called Transformational Leadership. It was a fantastic course. I loved it. It was really good. I learned a huge amount. And when the course finished, it just so happened that the way things worked out, I went on the course before my boss went on the course. So uh, I'd gone on about a month or two earlier. And when Mike came back from his week on the course, I couldn't wait to hear what he thought about the course. So he comes into work on the Monday morning, and I said, Mike, what did you think? And he said, well, I didn't think much of it, to be honest. I mean, I, didn't, I don't think I learned very much at all. I think they learned quite a bit from me, though. <laughs> so that's my number two, bit of humility. Um, Number three, I'd say, is use your common sense. I told you this is going to be very practical. Use your common sense. Now, as a business, especially in our business in insurance, which I'll talk a bit more a bit later on, data is everything. Data is crucial. And that's true of so many businesses today, probably all businesses. You know, understanding the data, learning the patterns of your business through numbers, figuring out what's, you know, how does a business work and how does that translate into metrics is crucial to be able to understand what's going on in your business and to be able to influence it effectively. If you can understand which are the right things that you need to move, the metrics that you can actually have an influence over and make change, then you're going to improve those, that data and that's going to make this difference to the business. But also you've got to understand those metrics that don't make much difference and not spend too much time wasting your time on things that aren't that important. And analyzing data is becoming more and more crucial to business success. But. The one big caveat I'd say to that, and you've got to be good at that. You've got to learn to love the data. You have to, to be a successful leader, I think. But the one big caveat I'd say is use your common sense. Remember that it's just data. And sometimes the data will tell you things, will lead you down a path which just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I don't think there's enough written these days about intuition and common sense in management and leadership. Data is very important, but sometimes you can, it will just feel wrong. And if it feels wrong, it feels like you're doing the wrong thing, or it feels like you're making the wrong decision, you probably are. So just be careful. Just use your common sense.
Number four on my list is don't take yourself too seriously. As you progress through your career, you will have more and more important jobs to do, as we all have. You'll be given more and more responsibility. Your jobs will become more and more serious. And they are serious jobs. You're taking a lot of responsibility. You're affecting a lot of people's lives. But that doesn't mean you have to take yourself quite so seriously. And it is remarkable how many people you see taking themselves too seriously. Just keep your feet on the ground. Keep things in perspective. You know, you've got your family, you've got your health, whatever it is important to you. Your job is that. Your job is your job. Um, and I was reminded of this very early on in my, in my CFO role at Admiral. Uh, Admiral had uh, I'd just taken over as CFO. We'd, just, we'd done very well. We'd moved into the FTSE 100. So we're now one of the top companies in the UK. And I'm doing the Investor Roadshow, which I was taking very seriously. This is where we go out on the road after we've done our results and we speak to investors and we try and explain to them what the business is doing, and they can make their minds up whether they want to buy or sell our shares. And we've gone to Edinburgh, which is a city in the north end of uh, the UK. And uh, we got there a bit early. So, um, so I went, we went across the road to a shop that was called Harvey Nichols, which is a, a fancy top-end shop. It's one of those like, really posh shops, like a Harrods. Uh, it's like $2,000 for a pair of jeans. That's all sort of nonsense. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we enjoyed ourselves wandering around, and I, I went to the top floor, and I bought a jar of olives for my wife. Nice little jar of olives. And went back downstairs, went to the meeting, and we're um, just waiting for the meeting to start. And the, the fund manager comes in. Uh, did, you like, did you like being in Edinburgh? Uh, yeah, very nice, I said. It's uh, lovely. In fact, we've just been across the road to that uh, Harvey Nichols next door. He, he looked at me straight away, and he said, Harvey Nichols? That's a dreadful store. It's full of bloody tourists. They wander around, they can't afford anything, they come out with a jar of olives. <laughs> I kept them in the bag. In fact, the story didn't have a very happy ending, actually, because uh, we got to the airport to fly home, they confiscated my olives. <laughs> Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, the last one on my little bit of homespun uh, leadership philosophy is... Keep your eye on the prize. That was five out of five. Keep your eye on the prize. Why am I saying that? Well, I think that's something I've learned later through my career. Um, some of these earlier ones, I think, have been with me right the way through. But this one is more and more relevant today than it's ever been. The enormous quantity of data that we have today, the enormous number of reasons why you get interrupted, why you have to focus on lots and lots of different things, makes it more and more difficult, in my opinion, to keep your eye on the prize. And by that I mean, really understand what's really important to your success in whatever it is you're doing, whether it's with your family, with your hobby, with your job, with your department, with your company, whatever it is, make sure you realise what what's really important there and keep a focus on it. I don't mean every single day all the time, but I mean keep reminding yourself regularly, whether that has to be every day or every week or once a month, whatever it is, keep coming back to what the prize is. Because these days it's so difficult to do that. It's so easy to get distracted. Now, when I started my career, when I qualified as an accountant, there was no internet. There was no email. Can we imagine a world without email? Bizarre. But it meant that if I wanted you to know something, I'd have to get it typed up. I'd have to photocopy it. I'd have to put it in an envelope. I'd have to send it to you. And then you may or may not read it. And then maybe a week or two later, you may or may not come back to me. There's a lovely story I remember. I read a book on David Livingston quite some time ago. David Livingston was a a British explorer who found the source of the Nile, you may remember him, um, many, many years ago in Victorian times, so we're talking about the late uh, 19th century. Uh, he's on his way to find the source of the Nile. He gets a certain way through the journey. He realises he's going to run out of money, run out of supplies. So he writes a letter to the Christian Society in London and says, I'm going to run out of money, what do you want me to do? Shall I turn around and come back? Or shall I, can you want to send me some more money? He writes this letter, it gets, for where he is, somewhere in the middle of uh, South Africa or wherever, it finds its way to the coast, goes on a boat, comes to London, it gets to London, the Christian Society open it up, they look at it and they go, oh, okay, I guess we better talk about this. So they decide to have a committee meeting about a month later. <laughs> and they'll talk about whether they're going to give him any money. They decide to give him some money, so they write him a letter. So, yeah, all right, then we'll send you some more money. They put the letter in the post, it goes on the ship, it goes, it's a year and a half between what shall I do next to do this. It's a different, what a, what a different world. Today, if you don't get an answer to your email, no matter where it is in the world, within a couple of hours, you're thinking, are they not paying attention? 
So keep your eye on the prize. Do not be distracted. There are so many millions of things now. We all get sent tons of information. And we all think, well, I do. Maybe it's just me. That you ought to perhaps do something about it. They've just sent me this report to read. I guess it must be important. There's a fair chance it may or it may not be. Or maybe someone else can do a darn better job on it than you can. So do not allow yourself to be distracted so much that you lose sight of the prize. That's my five bits of homespun management philosophy, for what it's worth, on my journey. Um, I'm now going to talk a little bit about um, the company I work for, which is called Admiral Group, PLC, uh, and here in the US, the subsidiary called Elephant Auto Insurance. And uh, I should start probably by saying why have I been with Admiral for 10 years? It's the longest time I've been, in fact, it's twice as long as I've been with any other company in my career. Um, I think a lot of it is down to the things I've been talking about, and a lot of the things I've been talking about are things that make me the person I am. Um, and I think the company that I work for really suits the person that I am. I'm going to talk a bit about culture this afternoon. And when I do that, I'm really talking about why I believe Admiral's a fantastic place to work and why it fits me very well. It won't fit everybody here, uh, but if you have a personality that likes this kind of stuff, then I think it's, a it's an enormously successful place to work in terms of personal growth and satisfaction. I think that's one of the key reasons why I've been here for 10 years and hopefully we'll be here for many years to come. But let me tell you about the business itself first. So Admiral Group is a, um, is a UK-based car insurance company that has about 4 million customers. It is uh, arguably the most successful car insurance company in the world. Arguably the most successful car insurance company in the world. That's a pretty bold statement. Um, let me see if I can prove that right or make it very difficult for you to prove it wrong. Um, we're very successful in the UK, as I was talking about earlier. We're about 10-11% market share. We're the largest car insurance provider in the UK by premium written. Uh, most, last, most recently, we've branched out into writing household insurance as well in the UK, quite successfully. And we've also launched international businesses, as you can see on this graph. On this picture, sorry. So uh, we are, of course, standing here in the US, which is our US subsidiary Elephant Auto Insurance. We have a business in France, another one in Spain, and another one in Italy. Car insurance operations, just like the business we have here in the US in, in Richmond. Uh, they're, in, they're, they're done deliberately in a certain way. They're built with a certain culture, which is the core foundation of why we think Admiral's done well in its history. And they're built to be disruptive. So they're internet-based and telephone-based direct-to-consumer car insurance operations uh, in markets which have traditionally been much more agent and storefront based. And, and these are disruptive businesses. So that we're finding that more and more people, as you would imagine, are going onto the internet to do their shopping for car insurance, just like they're going on the internet to do their shopping for everything else. And there's a whole cadre of people now, a growing proportion of the population, who do not want intermediation. They don't want to be interrupted by an agent. They can't be bothered to go down to the storefront to have that meeting just to talk about a simple thing like a piece of car insurance. They want to do it themselves. More and more they're doing it on their iPad or on their mobile phone whilst they're doing something else. And that's where we come in. We can, we can, launch, we can run a product which is very convenient to them. It's low cost. It's efficient and therefore can, can price appropriately. And it can cut out the, the intermediation, which are many of these big established car insurance markets in the world. And there's a deliberate reason why we've launched in the US and France and uh, Spain and Italy. And we haven't launched yet in India or Brazil or China, because we don't want necessarily to launch into markets where we're going to be toe-to-toe -to -toe with the other guy trying to do the same thing he's doing. We can go into a market where there's a huge amount of disruption in the market channel shift going on, and the current players find it more difficult to change their channels, and therefore they find it very hard because of that channel conflict to avoid losing a lot of customers to this new channel, and therefore we find it easier to pick up new business and grow our business. And that's been our strategy. Very simple, do what we do well in the UK and try and do it in other countries as well. This is our, this is our half year results from the half year just finished at the end of uh, middle of 2015. Uh, pretty successful company in terms of profits. Uh, makes uh, this, year, this year's half year numbers, for, if anyone's interested, are a record set of profits and a record set of uh, dividends. Uh, the one number I'll point out to you, which is in the bottom right hand corner, is a return on equity of 50%. There aren't too many companies, there's certainly no other companies in the insurance world that can make a return on equity of 50%. Phenomenal return. This is our history. This is our turnover, which is otherwise known as revenue. 
uh, in American speak. Uh, 18 million pounds of revenue in the first year in 1993 when we launched through to a couple of billion pounds of revenue uh, in the more recent years. Much more cyclical in the recent years, as you can see, the UK market is a very aggressively competitive market and actual premiums for the entire market have been falling for the last three years. I think the market premiums came down about 30%, so it's impossible to keep your revenue growing when you've got the whole market revenue coming down that sort of scale. But all of that growth through that period has been organic growth. We've never made any acquisitions in our history. It's all been about getting bigger and better at what we do. Here's our profit during the same period. Been profitable all the way through and still maintaining very high profits. That's last year's numbers, uh, in the, despite it being a down cycle in the insurance industry where everybody's profits are falling. So a very successful, profitable business. But what makes it extraordinary, and I think one of the reasons I would claim it is the, one, it's the most successful car insurance company in terms of margin in the world is because of this graph. This graph shows our combined ratio set against the market average in the UK. Now, our combined ratio in insurance jargon, for you who's not familiar with it, is simply that all of your costs divided into all of your revenue, pretty much. So it's our premium income we get for the insurance product we sell, less uh, divided into the, sorry, the cost of the claims and the expenses. So a, a combined ratio of less than 100 means you're making a profit. A combined ratio of more than 100 means you're making a loss. Simple as that. And you can see the market over here, this red line, generally runs at an underwriting loss. Now, it does make that back up with investment income and ancillary income, other things you sell alongside the car insurance. So the industry overall manages to make a profit, but it runs an underwriting loss pretty consistently. Only twice in the last 20 years or so has it made an underwriting profit. But what's extraordinary is that Admiral, despite being in what is a very strongly commoditized market, you would think it's very difficult to make money beyond the market norm, generally runs a combined ratio 20 to 25 percentage points better than the market. And it splits roughly evenly. So our business is efficient, much more efficient than the market. So the market runs an expense ratio of around 30%, roughly in the UK, a bit lower here than here in the US. And we run an expense ratio at Admiral of about 15%. And the market has claims costs, which are generally 10 to 15% higher than our claims costs overall. How do we do that? Well, I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute when I talk about culture, because in my opinion, there are lots of different reasons. I get this question quite regularly from our shareholders when I go and see shareholders, and it's, a, uh, it's been fun talking to shareholders while the share price has been doing so well over the last few years. It was £2.75 when we floated it. It's about £15 or so now. Um, shareholders ask me, how, how do you do it? What makes your company so different? How can you make these extraordinary profits in a market which is so commoditized, where Everybody buys their insurance on the internet through these price comparison sites, and you only get the business when you're the cheapest. How can that be? Uh, and the answer is, I think, is, is partly about fantastic pricing, better pricing than the market. Uh, so we get more accurate assessment of the risk. If you think about the way car insurance works, it's a strange, very strange product. You, you decide what price you're going to sell your product at today, and then you find out in two or three years' time what your cost of goods were, which is a bit scary. Um, and so pricing is absolutely fundamental. Your assessment of that risk is crucial. Uh, on the other hand, it is a compulsory purchase product, which is quite nice. Uh, here in the US, we've got a market of $180 billion of premium, which is compulsory. Well, that's nice. Can you think of any other products where the police drive around forcing your customers to buy your product? That's, that's quite nice. Uh, but at the heart of it all, I think, is the culture of the business. And I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Before I do that, I'll just talk a little bit about the international side of the business. Here shows our, our international businesses, which of course are on a much smaller scale than, than in the UK. Uh, so we've got the business in Italy at the top, then, then here in the US, in the yellow. Um, then we've got uh, the French business, and the, last, the bottom one is the Spanish business. Now the Spanish and the Italian businesses, you have to bear in mind, have been going through horrendous economics over the last few years. So when I talk about prices falling in the UK, it's nothing like the way they've fallen in Spain and in Italy, so it's been very difficult for those businesses to grow their top line in that context. I think the bad thing I'm right in saying that in Spain, car insurance prices have not gone up for 14 years. That's, that's a pretty tough environment to, to make money. But you can see that the uh, elephant business here in the US is growing strongly uh, and has been growing very fast since I joined, uh, since uh, 2012. Sorry, when I joined, we had about, um, I think, about 100 and 50 employees, if I remember rightly, and we've got about 420 now. 
um, and the business is growing very strongly. And we're growing in uh, four states. We're here, obviously here in Virginia, uh, as well as being based in Illinois and Maryland and in Texas. Uh, Texas is the second largest state for car insurance in the US uh, and a very big state for us for our growth in the future. But our strategy is a very simple one. We're just simply looking to grow the business by providing a product which customers will think is credible and is a good price. As long as they believe you to be credible as a provider of car insurance, then they will generally buy their product on price. And so we need to be there with the right price. And to be there with the right price, you have to, as I already said, be efficient in terms of cost, because you can't provide a lower cost if you're not low cost yourself. And you have to be good at pricing to be able to get the right risk assessment. So when you are the cheapest, you're cheapest for the right risk and you're not cheapest for the wrong risk, which is part of what makes the business so fascinating. Um, but at the heart of all that, I do believe that the, the way in which we can be more successful than our competitors is by getting the culture right in the business so that all the things that we do are underpinned by a strong culture. And I am a passionate believer in working the culture throughout the business so that the decisions that get taken on a day-to-day -day basis are the right kind of, more often than not, the right kind of decisions. And in our business, we talk about uh, four pillars of our culture. Uh, and they're very simple ones. Communication, equality, reward, and fun. That's it. It's not complicated. Um, and if, it's very hard for a shareholder or anybody else, I think, to understand how your business could be so different to other businesses. I think you have to work inside the business to get a feel for it. I still remember when I joined Admiral 10 years ago, how very different it was when I joined. The communication is incredible. It is frequent. It is open. It is honest. I like to say to people today that um, when I come into work each day, I'm able to just be myself. Doesn't sound rocket science. Um, but what I mean by that is that in other companies I'd worked in the past, when I came into the office in the morning, I was kind of a corporate version of myself. Now, if anyone re recognizes that from places they worked before, then hopefully that rings a bell. Because to me, um, the ref refreshing thing about the culture in, in the Admiral business is that you are able to be yourself. And if you can be yourself, you're much more likely to be honest and be open and talk about what needs to get fixed uh, and give honest and open assessment of feedback to other things that are working well or less well in the business. And you're much more likely to take the feedback yourself and change what you're doing and fix things more quickly. Rather than be defensive or be siloed or be fearful of your protecting your job or all the other things that go on in so many other companies. Um, so communication is a key part of the culture. Uh, and that means, of course, people want to know what the hell's going on. They want, they'd like to know what's happening in their business. So we try very hard to communicate what's happening in the business to everybody in the business. But it also means that people want to be heard as well. You know, the people who are most likely to be able to figure out what needs to be changed for our customers are the ones that are talking to them every day, not the ones in the senior management. And so communication in both ways is so crucial for success. We work hard on equality as well, which means that we want everyone to feel like this, we're all in this together. Uh, we don't, uh, you know, obviously some people get paid more than other people in our company, that's natural, but um, we don't have company cars, we don't have fancy desks or fancy chairs. I sit right in the middle of the office along with all the, the other CEOs of all our other businesses sit right in the middle of the office. We've got 7,500 employees in the Admiral Group and we don't have a single office, not one. Even the group CEO doesn't have an office. So we try hard to make things as equal as, feel as equal as possible so that people do feel on a more level ground when, when we're talking to each other. Um, reward is another important thing. Uh, obviously incentives and bonuses and, and share allocations are a big part of the rewards as well. We, do, we want everybody in the Admiral Group to be a shareholder, so everybody is a shareholder. We give out shares to every member of staff, no matter who you work, where you are and what you do. Everybody gets the same number of shares every six months that we give out to employees because we believe in that as an important component of buying into the business. Uh, but we also, more importantly on this pillar of our culture, is the reward in the sense of just little things, just saying thank you for things, being very public about being grateful for things that people are doing, recognizing good work frequently, rewarding with little things all the time. It's a big part of the, uh, the culture and reinforcing the right kind of things that people are doing. And then the fourth pillar is fun. Uh, you may have heard some things about Elephant being a fun place to work in Richmond. Uh, hopefully it's true. Um, 
I think the, uh, we do work hard on making sure things are fun. It's a hard job working in insurance, especially if you're on the phones all day long with customers. And it's a tough, grueling job. And so if we can inject a bit of fun into it, we play silly games. We do, we do daft things. We particularly enjoy uh, making the CEO look stupid um, or making senior managers do things they don't necessarily want to do. Uh, we, we, you know, we interrupt the day frequently with little things going on just to make the place a fun place to work. Because I think if you can come to work in the morning with a feeling that it's not going to be all drudgery and I'm not going to be looked at from on high. You know, I remember one of my many jobs I did when I was at university, I worked in a, a sorting office for the mail, mail room. And uh, I don't think they exist anymore. They can't do. It was a bizarre environment. The, we would sit and sort the post along this middle row here. And up above, on a mezzanine, would be the managers sitting in little offices, looking down on us, watching what we're doing. They were checking, I think, that we didn't steal anything. I think that was the idea. Either that or they just didn't like the smell down there at the bottom. I don't know, I don't know what it was. But... But if you can keep it, keep it open and keep it some fun, then people are much more likely to come into work, hopefully, with a, a sense that maybe not a spring in their step, I can't wait to get to work this morning, but maybe a little bit less of the dread that happens to so many of us and has happened to us, I think, happened to me in, past, in, my, in my career in the past. So we do spend a lot of time trying to keep that fun going uh, and moving around the company all the time. Uh, and we have a saying, as Felipe said in his introduction, uh, which has become a bit of a mantra in the group, which is that uh, people who enjoy what they do will do it better. People who enjoy what they do will do it better. It's common sense, isn't it? If you like what you're doing, if you're actually fascinated by it, you're actually looking forward to doing it, you're much more likely to get stuck into it and think about how can I do it better than if you're doing it under duress or you're doing it uh, without any great enthusiasm. So people who enjoy what they do, do it better. I firmly believe that, and so I spend a good part of my working day trying to make sure that people enjoy what they do. That's it. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Could you uh, maybe talk a little bit about the difficulties, if there are any, of working for a UK-based firm but being out of Richmond? Or the time zone. <laughs> uh, it has its pluses and its minuses. Uh, we're five hours apart, so if they're going to bother me, they're going to do it in the morning. And by lunchtime, my day is clear, which is great. Um, I think one of the things about Admiral that I really appreciate, they were having come, you know, I said I was the CFO and then CEO of a UK business, which was, which was based in the head office as well, so everything was sort of close together. Now I've come over to here, I really feel the benefit of the autonomy that's given to the, to the business units. So we are firm believers in tribalism in the group, in the sense of each country, each operation has the opportunity to make its own mistakes and do its own things. So everything we do here in Elephant is independent. Our systems are completely independent from the UK. Our, our people services practices, our marketing, everything we do, we don't, our brand, it's all our own choices. Uh, and that's great. So you, uh, hopefully we try and get the best of both worlds. We, do, we spend a lot of time working on integration between the countries. So we make the functional managers meet up regularly. We try and make them have calls frequently. I have a call with my fellow CEOs every week. Uh, and we do that just to exchange communication and ideas about things that we're working on, problems we've got that we can try and help each other with. But in terms of the way the group operates, it's very much a believer of independence for each entity. So that's fantastic for me because I enjoy the autonomy, I enjoy the power uh, of being able to do things, and I can get the advice and I can decide whether to follow it or not follow it. So one other thing I should say on that, which I should be very, very grateful for, which is that the group are paying for all the bills. So I think I consider myself very fortunate to be working in what is largely a very entrepreneurial startup kind of company where we're testing things all the time and trying to do things differently and making lots of mistakes. We're also losing a lot of money. You know, we're, a, we're an insurance business with a, in a market which has very high acquisition costs, and therefore the faster you grow, the more you're going to lose. And we're losing a lot of money, and we will continue to lose a fair amount of money as long as we continue to try and grab market share and grow the business. It'll, it'll take quite a while, we think probably somewhere up to 10 years before we can have as an insurance, a car insurance operation a profitable standalone business. So I have, a, I have the extreme luxury of being in a job where I can make decisions and learn things and have a kind of a nice entrepreneurial float feel to it while somebody else is supporting the business very patiently whilst we lose money until we get to profitability. And I'm very grateful for that.
Hi. Um, I noticed you said that Admiral Group has moved into home insurance in the UK. Is that an attempt to diversify given how driverless cars might disrupt the industry? Um, and regardless, how are you all thinking about that? Uh, yes, it is, uh, partly at least. I think, uh, what, I mean, there's a huge benefit of the synergy between home insurance and car insurance. Obviously, you've got an awful lot of customers who uh, will, may or may not be interested in buying this additional product from you as well. It's not quite as integrated as it is here in the U.S. You know, we've, we did, we've done home insurance in the U.S. right from the beginning because many of our customers say, where's your home insurance product? So we've already got that here. But uh, in the U.K., we've launched it relatively recently. Uh, and there's an interesting, fascinating um, synergy on pricing between home insurance and car insurance. You know, what does that risk that you've learned about driving a car tell you about that risk that's living in a house? Um, so from that point of view, it would be interesting to do and fascinating to do in its own right. But I think it's also a defensive mechanism to, to build out other insurance lines for what is inevitably going to be a declining car insurance premium over the long haul. Uh, quite how the car insurance market is going to evolve once cars become more and more automated is itself fascinating. Um, maybe you guys did another study on it, I don't know. Um, and how that plays out will be interesting to see. But I, I think it, and I think it's going to be quite a long haul. You know, this talk about it, I think it's going to change is a bit premature in my opinion, because I think what we'll see is more and better automation over time of more and more devices in the car that will help the car be less likely to crash until eventually it will be replaced by an autonomous car. Uh, but that's probably a 20 to 30 year cycle. Um, if you think today, the average age of the car on the road in the US right now is about 10 years old. So even if the decision happened tomorrow morning to replace the, the whole car park, will take another 10 years or so. So it's going to be quite a long haul, but I think during that time, I think the, com the companies that adapt to that new technology and the way of build either building out their product set or building out the way they provide their car, core car insurance product will, be the, will decide, decide the winners from the losers. Um, uh, thanks for sharing your story. I thought your career progression was quite inspirational. Um, what advice do you have for us as we embark on our career if, uh, you know, as through our career, if things don't look rosy or, you know, it doesn't meet our aspirations and it has to still, so that we could still keep going through those highs and lows? So. Great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess the way I told the story sounded very linear, didn't it? It all went very smoothly and swimmingly all the way through. Of course, the knife isn't really like that. Um, I, I think, um, I suppose that bit I said, remember when I said at the very beginning that the, the, the lecturer used to advise me not to be a lawyer? What a dick. <laughs> um, you know, I'd say get into something you really enjoy, something you're really passionate about. If you want to come and talk to me about working with us, that's nice, that'd be great. Obviously, I want to talk to you all, but whatever it is you decide to do, you know, really figure out that it's what you really enjoy doing. And if you don't enjoy doing it, stop doing it and go do something else. But if you really enjoy doing it and company X is not working out for you because either your boss doesn't like the look of you or they've decided to promote this other guy through faster than you because he's smarter than you or whatever it is, if there's a reason why you're not moving well in where you are right now, then figure out where you can go next to, to make that work. And you will have to go maybe sideways or even down to find the next move. But as long as you're doing something that you really enjoy and you're passionate about, then I think those other things will follow. No, you will be good at it if, you're really, if you really enjoy it, and you'll probably be quite successful at it, and then you'll get noticed and you'll get promoted. But it won't necessarily all happen in a nice straight line. Um, I've, I've really appreciated your sense of humor. Um, and you're, uh, you talked a lot about humility and not being too serious. Are there certain times uh, where it's important to be serious, or how do you balance that with the uh, confidence that people look for in leaders? Um, yes, of course there are times to be serious. Uh, the, the, um, uh, there are some serious decisions to be made, and I don't think I was... Uh, I don't think I was trying to say, and maybe I didn't say it very well, I don't think I was trying to say that you should treat the whole thing as a good joke and 
you know, everything's entertainment. But far from it. You know, you take some very serious decisions, and there are there are decisions that I take and and my colleagues take that affect many people's lives, uh, either about growing this bit or shutting down that bit or launching into there or, or not doing that. And so um, there are very expensive decisions that I take that waste the company a lot of money. I'm pretty good at that. Um, and there are decisions that we take that will affect somebody's livelihood or their family. And so, yes, you take that very seriously and you try and make the best decision you can with the information you have at your disposal. Uh, and hopefully, you just hope that more often than not you get it right. But sometimes you'll get it wrong. And, and I think, um, so those are important, serious decisions that you have to take very seriously in the way that you do the right things, do the right level of due diligence to come to the conclusion and therefore the action. What I'm trying to say is don't take yourself too seriously. Don't think because I've just made this big decision or I've just made this great success of this business that we've just done here that somehow you're some superhero or that you're super clever or, or that you can do anything you want or that you have to be terribly earnest about all the things you do in order to be successful in your career. What I'm trying to say is keep your feet on the ground and recognize that if you've got a good health and a good family uh, and you, you know, you've got a quality of life, then you're a very lucky person indeed. And if you've got a career on the back of that that's going quite well as well, then you've really got the icing on the cake. Um, so it seems like that the attitude, core values, and uh, culture of the company grew from your previous experience, right? Because like, you literally started from the bottom. Um, but most organizations claim those um, same kind of values and culture, but a lot of them don't follow through. So what, what would you suggest or recommend for us going into a company that um, we, we really enjoyed the work, however, the culture around us isn't quite fitting to, to the, to the uh, company's uh, value or culture. Like how will we as managers or like um, senior level associates change that? Like should we become the change agent or should we look for something else that's more suited for our personalities? Uh, I think that's a fantastic question actually. And I think um, I found Admiral and Admiral suits my personality. And uh, I've been very comfortable working in the business. I've been very challenged, but at the same time, I think it's a culture that fits my personality really well. Uh, I can't say the same thing for some of the other companies I've worked for. Uh, and I think there I have learned that I, it's not the company for me. Uh, but you're absolutely right that all companies would espouse the kind of things I've been saying on these, these words. You know, they're all very common generic terms to describe the kind of culture you might like to think your company is. Um, so it is very hard to judge, but I think, um, I think I heard your question from a couple of directions. If I was thinking of as a, in your shoes, how do I choose a company now? I try and do as much due diligence as I can on the company. I try and meet with as many people as I can to get a feel for what the senior managers are like. Even if they only offer you a couple of interviews, try and uh, find ways of talking to more people inside the business. Because the people who actually work inside the business are the ones that can tell you what it's really like there. Um, and you, it's very hard to get a feel for it from just a couple of interviews. What if like, you're from the inside? Like, you have already joined the company, yeah. and like, it's pretty much down the road. Things are not as rosy as they have been previously. Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been there. I know exactly what you mean, which is the other part of your question. And I think um, it really depends on the on the case by case. Because if the company is small enough that you feel as if you can you can really make a difference, if you're in a position of influence, you know, in my position now, for instance, I think long and hard about the people we recruit into the business, because choosing the right individuals with the right personalities, the right cultural fit, is going to make such a huge difference to what happens next in the organisation. We've gone, as I said, from 160 to 420 people. If the extra 260, whatever it is, people were the wrong kind of people, the culture would have completely changed. And so you need to, I think, if you're in the position where you can influence that sort of, the, 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 the big influences in the organization, then work long and hard to bring the right kind of people in. And so they become a big enough group of people that can actually start to move the culture. But if you're in a bigger organization, or if you're in a position where you're kind of stuck, and you're on your own, I'd say 
polish up your CV and find a new job. Hi, uh, thanks so much for uh, sharing your story. Uh, a lot of us are going to come out of Darden with 12 to 15 hour uh, you know, work days, with weekends maybe, and maybe uh, that's what it takes to you know, succeed in a career in the long term. Uh, but then you don't get the time to stop and smell the roses or you know, focus on your hobbies. Uh, as someone who's CEO and, and who's done Ironman races, right. what are your uh, thoughts on achieving a work-life balance, and is there such a thing at all? I'm probably not the right person to ask. Um, although if I could do an Ironman in 12 hours, I'd be absolutely thrilled. Um, the, uh, no, I don't work 12, 15 hours a day, uh, and I hope most of my colleagues don't either. I don't think you need to. I think, I think it's a myth. And, and I don't think you're productive at that kind of level. You know, I really don't. I think uh, uh, the work-life balance, I haven't really talked about it at all, but I guess it's, it is another important part of the Admiral Group uh, philosophy is that you need a kind of work-life balance. Uh, I remember when I first joined in the company and I'd see my boss leaving at uh, 6 o'clock every evening, pretty much on the dot. He's always been very good at that. Um, and I, that's not a joke. That's true. I mean, that, I think that's the right way to be. You know, you've got to get it right. Always take a lunch break. Always leave work at the right time. Because if you make it work, you make, keep it into a process where you're thinking you've got to stay longer to just answer those last few emails or just do that last bit of work, you'll do it for a while, but then you'll start to resent it. Six months down, a year down, maybe two years down, you'll start to resent it. And then you'll think, why am I doing all this? Well, maybe I'm getting paid a bit more, but have I really got a life? So, and some people, don't get me wrong, some people love it, that's fine. If you're driven by that and you want to work 15 hours a day and it's what turns you on, fine. Have fun. Kick, knock yourself out. Um, but you probably wouldn't fit into our business. We've had people that join our company uh, at the senior levels who have not liked it. And the body has rejected the organ. You know, they've left. <laughs> because they want to be a hero. They want to show how terrific they are and they can do everything. And so they work all the hours God gave them. And, and after a while, people around them are like, who is this guy? And so it, it's horses for courses. I think it's different for different businesses. So I'd say um, if work-life balance is important, do you find a company that supports work-life balance? Simple as that. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Uh, I'm Shelley, and it has been wonderful to you know see the whole trajectory of Admiral uh, Insurance across in UK and across other countries. And as you mentioned, that it has all been organic growth. And so I just wanted to know: is the company looking for um, what are the other opportunities for organic growth that Admiral Group is now looking for, or are you looking for any kind of mergers or acquisitions? I mean, what what is the growth trajectory or the projections for the group in coming future? Uh, well, we do look at acquisitions regularly. We just never got around to making one. Um, as CFO, I looked at acquisitions you know, all the time, well, all the time, but pretty frequently. And um, we generally would come to the conclusion that we didn't want to do it. And that's usually because somebody else is, is, is prepared to be riskier than we are. They're going to pay more for it. So we'll, if we went into it at all, we'd be the underbidder. Um, but partly because of the culture as well. You know, with the, I keep coming back to the same point, but if... If uh, here in the US, we've looked at a number of acquisitions in order to kickstart our US auto insurance business, and they would kickstart our auto insurance business. We'd be, in a, you know, we'd be further forward than we are right now in terms of volume and scale. But you'd be a, you'd be inheriting a culture of a business that's very hard to move. And if you believe, and I do really believe this, that the culture you create is fundamental to your success, and if you really do believe that you can only achieve those sort of market-beating combined ratios by underpinning the business of all the right um, cultural elements from the beginning, then going and buying a business that's already market average and believing that you can turn it around, is, you're probably kidding yourself. So acquisitions, I think, you know, never say never. It's possible. Uh, and maybe you know, in certain circumstances, it might be the right thing to do. But I think it's, it's unlikely. It's certainly unlikely all the time I was CFO. Maybe it's more likely now. Um, in terms of organic, I think there's you know, still a lot of world to go for. So we are looking at other countries. Uh, we will expand the businesses into other operations. We've got a number of startup uh, internet price comparison sites that are launching uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, and I expect us to follow that with insurance businesses over time. So I think we've attacked a certain number of markets today. We expect to be in other markets in the course of the next few years.
thank you everyone for being here and please join me saying thank you to Kevin for being with us. Thank you. 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 Thank you.